Welcome to the Redemption Hill Sermon Podcast. For more information, feel free to visit our website, redemptionshill.com. Good morning. It's good to be here with you. I don't know if you guys are extra jazzed about Father's Day or extra caffeinated or what, but I could hear you sing real well. I liked it. So do that some more, I guess, huh? Uh, yeah, it, it's really good to be here uh, with you. We, we've been in this series for a couple weeks now in the book of of Nehemiah, this, uh, the rebuild series that we're in. And today we'll endeavor to cover the entire third chapter of uh, the book. So you should know this about this sermon and the rest of the sermons on uh, kind of our way forward in the book of Nehemiah. These are narrative-based texts, so they're going to outline a lot different than what you'll see in the New Testament. Uh, some of the sermons are going to cover even up to two entire chapters. Uh, the rest all pretty much one single chapter. So we kind of have a decision to make. Uh, when we cover these larger narrative texts, do we read the entirety of the text each week, extending the sermons by maybe up to 15 minutes on the larger weeks? Uh, do we kind of do that? And then I have to look at the RH kids workers in the eye and go, sorry, like afterwards, do we do that? Or do we kind of uh, preach through the sermons by reading parts of the text instead? And so we're going to opt for that latter option. We won't be reading all of the texts each week here. Uh, We'll read parts of them to preach through them. Keep in mind, we bought those Nehemiah books for you with places to take notes, and there's even a sermon schedule there. So on any given time, if you want to read the entire text before the sermon, you can. Uh, so just grab one of those. They're at the front door. That desk up there has those, but it'll have the schedule each week of what's coming next uh, and the book to take notes. Uh, it, it's pretty easy just to be able to take some notes and then kind of bring that back to your MC or your DNA or, or whatever. So I just kind of encourage you uh, to do that. This is the way that we'll cover uh, really the rest of the book of Nehemiah, though. At least one chapter every week. They're longer texts. It would be outstanding if you'd kind of have that in your mind before we preach through it. Uh, Another little bit of business that we uh, need to know and celebrate is through the course of the summer, there's going to be five to six different voices preaching to you. Yeah, that, that is a, that's a really good thing. Um, some of the voices that are going to preach to you are going to be brand new ones that have never preached to you before. Uh, and that's a good gift, worthy of our joy, worthy of our encouragement. Just in family talk, we've been the healthiest when most voices have been growing up to speak to us the good news of the gospel. And being able to kind of share the pulpit and the ability to preach further proves that we are the body, not the one voice. And that's a good thing. It's good for you. It's good for me. It's good for the entire body. So that's going to be happening uh, throughout the summer. Quite a few different voices preaching to you. Uh, And man, I just hope that your heart is encouraged by that, uh, like mine will be. So into the book. Uh, So far in Nehemiah, we've seen this. Nehemiah is like 850 miles away from his home that is Jerusalem. Uh, uh, Jerusalem is the home of Israel, the the people of God. It was raided well over 50 years prior, and it's still in just complete and utter ruins after it was raided. Now, this Jerusalem, it's more than a physical place we see in the book of Nehemiah. It's more than just a city. It's more than just rocks. It's more than just walls. It symbolizes the, the very welfare of God's people uh, and the really the holy name of God. So as the city lays in ruins, here's what the people around are thinking. Uh, The people of God, the name of God, and the purposes of God are all in jeopardy, if not completely failed already. 
Uh, and Nehemiah, this doesn't set well with him. So he's working as a cupbearer to the king, King Artaxerxes. And Nehemiah gets word from someone that Jerusalem is still in utter ruin. He had hoped, man, after all these years, maybe uh, Ezra and maybe some of the other guys, maybe they were able to uh, rebuild. That had not been the case. Things were worse off than they'd really ever been before. When he gets this news, his heart is broken. He's burdened. And we hear that he ends up weeping and mourning and praying and fasting for four and entire months that God would work and use him and do something to restore Jerusalem. These four months of prayer, they lead to one conversation where he asked the king for permission and provision to go back and rebuild Jerusalem. This is a pretty high ask considering the king had pretty ardently said, no, we're never going to do that. And anyone who tries to do that is challenging me. He asks him for it and the king allows him. He says, okay. So Nehemiah makes the journey all the way back to Jerusalem. This is where we were at last week. And he goes and he surveys the damage in the cover of night because there's many powerful men who are coming against him. And he sees that, man, things are terribly bad. And then Nehemiah does what has to be done. He shares the vision with other people about rebuilding Jerusalem. He shares it with the exiles, with the priests, with different tribes, with different groups, with all kinds of people. He shares this vision of rebuilding the people of God, uh, this city that symbolized God's holy name. And they end up taking ownership of it with him. Uh, They take ownership of this great task. When he shares the vision, they actually get really excited about it. They're fired up going, God, strengthen our hand. Let's do this. Nobody can stand against us. If our God wants to do this, then, then... then they're not going to stop us. This is the, the way too fast run through what's happened so far. There's been great themes in this book about leadership and uh, character and, and following Christ, specifically over the power of being a prayer-first people. Like when we pray through our burdens and our callings and things going around, we learn that it deepens our connection with God just because we're sharing our heart with him. Uh, It gives us time to hear from God, to hear his plans and his counsel and his way of of dealing with things. It gives us courage that we would not have if we did not pray. It creates persistence in the face of walking out like really hard things. Uh, There's more to it also. There's more things that we learned through there, but you can check out the podcast really if you want that. Today we cross over into seeing how the tough work of God gets done through his people, right? This is what we're going to see. How does these amazing things, how does the tough work of God happen through his people? It's one thing to have an idea. Everyone has an idea. Everyone has a hot take. Uh, everyone has some sort of, of idea or, or plan. And if they'd only do this, it would fix this. And everybody knows what you should do and they have a loud voice, but it's altogether other deal to actually be a part of working out, seeing things fixed. It's a whole other thing to do the nitty-gritty, sometimes thankless, grueling work of just faithfulness, and we get a picture of that through the text today. Before we dive into the reading uh, concerning Nehemiah doing the work that God called him to, there's a couple different ways that I want us to be able to see what these people are doing in the text. In Christianity, we have what is called a general calling on all of us who follow Christ. So if you are a Christian, you have this calling on your life, each and every one of you, right? So there's a, a, specific, there's a general calling, but then here there's this other thing called a specific calling also that God will birth in some of his people. What we need to know is there's an important difference between those. We need to 
need to know what's what there. We need to know how to differentiate them. So the general calling on all who follow Jesus, all who are saved, is to make disciples. We see this in the Great Commission. It is to not just worship Jesus alone. It is to make disciples, to have a learning posture personally. We come into this faith as babies. So it's our posture and it's our calling to grow up and then help other people grow up as well with us so that we can mature in our faith. It's not just the the pastor's job. It's not just the elders. It's not just MC leaders. It's not just people who play on the worship band. It's the job of all who believe because Christ saves us not just from the penalty of our sin, but he saves us into his mission of what he's doing. So as followers of Christ, uh, we become those who take on the task of Christ with him. That's why the Bible says things like we are his hands and feet. And we do this while living as a part of the body, the church, the bride of Christ. Uh, So that means to follow Jesus is to live like him in obedience to God. It is to embrace his call on our lives in word and deed. And it's to be a member of a local church body. They don't use the word membership in the Bible, but they would call you a member of the body, serving it with your gifts. We use the the, the words with your time, treasure, and talent. This is what it means to have a general calling. You mature, you help others disciple, you're a part of the body, you serve the body, and you're on the mission of Christ. If you didn't know that and you're saved, you're called to that, right? Right? And then there are more specific things that God will place on our life as well. Uh, These may be burdens, they may be tasks, they may be areas of of ministry or good works that you're called to be a part of. So if you've been around here for a while, one of the interesting moments that I believe that God called us to a more special or specific thing, at one time we had many of us who were language partners for international students through MU. I don't remember the the number that we had, I think it may have been like 15 or or something like that that could have completely been uh, made up. But what we did is we loved international students. We helped them acclimate to the culture. We invited them into our homes. We shared meals with them, and we intentionally shared Jesus with them. This was over and above the general calling. That moment came, and we were able to do that. Uh, Some of you, I think, are going to be called to start missional communities, Right? That's going to be, I believe, a special calling on your life. Some of you are being called now to evangelism in ways that you never thought you would probably do it. Uh, some may be called to start a youth group here. Right? When we started our church, we had no kids. Now we have several kids, and, the, and we're getting older. Some of you may be called to do that, and, and some of you, hear me, uh, some of you may be called to go plant your own church and send you out. This list of special callings goes on and on and on, but the understanding is these are things over and above our general calling. They're in addition to the beautiful things that we're called to be a part of besides uh, mission and membership of a local body. For Nehemiah, his special calling was to, to, to kind of spearhead the rebuilding of Jerusalem. Now, these ideas of general and specific calling, why I want to keep those ahead of us as we move forward is is I want to just press on you as this text opens up to to be aware that God may be calling you to more things outside of your general calling right now. And I want to cheerlead you and say, pray through that and ask, what does it look like? And be attentive to God's ear going, this is what I'm going to ask you to do next, and it's going to be great. So I want to see that in light of this text. So Nehemiah, uh, we're in chapter three. So do me a solid. If you've read through this book, the names, right? They're, 
what I'm going to do is I'm going to say them super fast, and you're going to, uh-huh. And like, we're just going to pretend that I know what I'm doing, and then I'm going to say them right. Uh, I will not. I will butcher them real bad, but that's okay. So uh, we'll start with Nehemiah 2.20. We need the last verse from last week to go into this week. Uh, Nehemiah 2.20 says, Then I replied to them, the God of heaven will make us prosper. And we, his servants, will arise and build, but you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. That was after he shared the vision that we're going to do this together and you can't stop us if our God is for us. Then Nehemiah 3. Then Eliashab, that was worse than even when I practiced it, the high priest rose up with the brothers, uh, with his brothers, the priests, and they built the sheep gate. They consecrated it and they set its doors. They consecrated it as far as the Tower of the Hundred, as far as the Tower of Hananel. And next to him, the men of Jericho built. And next to them, Zakur, the son of Imri, built. Uh, the sons of Hesaniah built the fish gate. They laid its beams and they set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. And next to them, Merimeth, the son of Uriah, son of Hakaz, repaired. And next to them, uh, Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, son of uh, Meshezabel, repaired. Uh, and next to them, you, you kind of you see in this, and next to them, uh, Zodak, the son of Manna, repaired. And next to them, the Tikkites repaired, but their nobles would not stoop to serve the Lord. We could do an entire sermon over verse 5, but we're not going to. All these people, next to them, they're working, but there's a certain group who go, I ain't doing that. Uh, verse 8. Uh, next to them, uh, Uziel, the son of Hariah, goldsmiths repaired. Next to him, Hananiah, one of the perfumers repaired. Uh, and they restored Jerusalem as far as the broad wall. Verse 12, next to him, Shalom, the son of, he of Helohesh, ruler of half the district of Jerusalem repaired. He and his daughters, verse 32, and between the upper chamber of the corner and the sheep gate, the goldsmiths and the merchants repaired. This is the word of the Lord in Nehemiah 3. So at the end of chapter 2, uh, those three powerful men that we saw last week are, are pressing against Nehemiah and the people. They're trying to shut down their efforts to rebuild. And Nehemiah says, no, 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 it's not just me. We, his servants, will arise and build. Uh, this ended up being a prayed-up prophetic kind of battle cry for the people, even if there's opposition that surrounded us, even if you're threatening us, even if there's powerful accusations and powerful people and a mob that looms over us. No matter all of that, they go, no, it doesn't matter. I feel called. We feel called. Their confidence in God was more powerful uh, th than their fear of the other people. So they are going to rise up and they are going to rebuild together. Then we go into uh, the rest. But let's tease that out for a second. Nehemiah doesn't say uh, that, hey, even if you're oppressing me, I will rebuild. Watch me do it. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say, uh, well, you know what? Let me just ask the question, what's the church going to do to rebuild from a safe distance? He, he doesn't do that. Uh, he, he doesn't uh, depend on the Masons or some other group of people to, to commission them. You go do this. No, it, it says through their confidence in God, they together arose and they built the powerful uh, things that happen in this book come out of the people together, the, the, the we, the us, the body working together, the people of God together playing vital parts and thing, seeing things restored is, is really a major theme in this chapter. 
Then as you read through chapter 3, I know that we only read uh, parts of it, but Nehemiah gives this counterclockwise account of the walls in the city, right? The, the walls, the gates, and every little part. And, and what he does is in each part that he's going around, he lists this guy fixed that, and this guy fixed that, and this guy fixed that. He's naming 40 different people or groups or families uh, that repaired different sections, So let that sink in. There are 32 verses that labor to show us a multitude of people working. That's what they're doing. Uh, This guy worked here. This family worked here. uh, These people worked here. This group worked on this gate. uh, These guys did an entire section. If you read the section on your own, it's possible that you kind of skim the section, right? Who's done a Bible in a year plan, right? You get to numbers, right? It's possible that, that you do that, that you're going, oh man, it's just unheard of people doing random tasks that I don't actually understand. And then you just, you move on as if the random people doing a plethora of different things are trivial and no big deal. But that would be a mistake because that's the, ex- that's the entire point of this text. The people doing all of these things equals a whole rebuilt city. It, it equals restoration, Many different people coming together, doing what the Bible calls moving mountains. In biblical times, to move on a mountain was an expression to do something that seems impossible uh, to the eye, right? To, To rebuild a city that had been utterly destroyed and set on fire using no army, regular people, including perfumers, that's moving mountain type work for the glory of God, but they do it together. Now look at how the text begins and what it shows us. It starts with the priests, the vocational ministers, right? In our day, this would be me. This would be the, 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 the pastors. Uh, they're not just barking orders of you do this and you do this and you do this. Uh, they get into the trenches, so to speak, and they lead the people by working with them. It's a dangerous game when clergy expect the people to do things that they won't. This isn't the case here. The clergy lead by working. Next to the priests, a group of men posted up and they began working away. Uh, And a little further, several groups pitched in and did their part on the wall. Then it says that the goldsmiths repaired a good-sized section of wall and the perfumers beside them fixed a massive part of the wall. This cannot be ignored. The Bible is written in such a way uh, for a reason. Goldsmiths, and perfumers, side by side, getting a massive amount of work done. Goldsmithing is hot, dirty, labor-intensive refining of metal. Right? That's not a white-collar vocation. Uh, the hands of someone who's a goldsmith would have been stained. They would have been callous. You know, like working man hands. When you look, you're like that dude works hard. While the perfumers. Uh, They dealt with ointments. They were more like pharmacists. They uh, mix oils and plants and and fragrances to sell to people. That's not a dirty job. Uh, It's not hot and labor-intensive. Their hands would not have been calloused. They would not have been used to hard, uh, difficult, rock-moving manual labor. And yet, despite that, both groups are side-by-side, and they put in an amazing amount of work. We have to glean uh, more from that. Often at times, we assume that our vocation is the defining reality over our lives. 
It defines who we are and what we can or can't do. But, but here's the thing. Your vocation was never meant to be a defining reality over your life or a box to live inside. Your vocation was meant to give you food. That's it. That was the amazing part of verse 8. People stepped out of their box, which was their vocation, and out of their vocational skill set and out of their habits and their identity, they came through their job, and they did amazing things. So here's what we're supposed to see. Perfumers became dirty, hardworking, get-or-done type people like that for the mission of God, right next to the goldsmiths. This would be the modern equivalent of a a, a Fortune 500 CEO uh, working with, with a concrete work laborer. They're not like each other. Completely different worlds. But yet on the mission of God, they're working side by side. Their vocation doesn't define what they can or can't do anymore. And I'll press this further. At times, not only our vocation, but the skills we possibly use in our vocation become the defining reality over us. People will say often, well, I'm not an extrovert. I'm not a theologian. I'm not a public speaker. I'm not, I'm not good with people. I don't even really like people, right? People will focus on what they think um, they're not good at so intensely that it becomes this thing that pigeonholes them into a corner of, of insignificance and worthlessness where they become like a self-fulfilling prophecy. I could never do it, so you never do it. How many times... Have you felt these things? I would just say, like, you do, and so do I. You felt, well, I'm not good at prayer. So even though, I, like, this person I see is, man, they could use some prayer. Like, I'm not good at it, and like, I, I'm not, I can't move towards that because what if I go in and I do more damage than good? I'm, not, I'm just not so, somebody should pray for them, but I can't, right? You hide behind my, I'm just not good at that, so I can't, or Man, I'm not good at reading the Bible, so you can't really ever offer to open it with someone else because you're like, I'm not really that good with it, and I don't know the Bible books wrapped and know like where things are, and I can't really navigate it that well. So like, I, I would, but I probably couldn't because, again, like, what if I make things worse off th- than if I hadn't? Or, you know, I don't have all the answers, so I can't really share the ins and outs of my faith with other people because what if they ask a question that I just don't know the answer to, and, and then I screw it up, and then, they, and then they don't get saved because of me? See, we begin to talk about or think about what we're not good at. I'm not good at prayer. I'm not good at the Bible. I'm not good at questions. And here's what we need to know. Those are all lies. Those are accusations that the devil wants you to believe. They're not true of you. Why? Because the Spirit of God is in you. See, there are attempts to keep you from jumping in and playing your part on the mission of God. So, so here's what we need to understand. We serve the God who, who really uses white coat, wimpy hands to build massive walls. We serve the God who places stuttering men as spokesmen. We serve the God who used a prostitute to save Joshua and the entire people of God. We serve the God who, who put men who were angry murderers on top of seeing the people of God saved. The question in the kingdom of God, and here's what I want so deeply from my heart and yours. The question in the kingdom of God is not what you are good at. It's what are you willing to be faithful in, even if it's scary. That's the question. That's the question, because the Spirit of God is with you to empower you. See, we need kind of new metrics about how we judge heroes in the faith. And here's the new metrics that would be really, really good if we would use it. Faithful over fantastic. Faithful. Faithful. 
See, God doesn't need you to be perfect. Remember the gospel. He sent a perfect savior. That's all the perfection that you need. So this illusion of you and I becoming perfect doesn't have to be there anymore. So often the church prioritizes, man, they're, they're good at this, or they speak so well, or they do this, or they're just good around people. And they're like, let them do it. That, that's not the metrics. Here's the metrics. What are they doing after 10 or 20 years? Are they still faithful? That's how you judge a hero in the faith. We have to stop telling ourselves that we have to be the most skilled, fantastic, or amazing people in order to be used. I I listened to a sermon, and then Lauren messaged me this week and wanted me to listen to it, so I listened to it again, and and a line resonated with me and and her both. It was from uh, Matt Chandler at the Village Church, but but he said this, and I thought it was just perfect for, for this exact text. And I'm going to quote him indirectly because uh, I don't know exactly how he said it, but this is what I took from it. If we were all sloppily faithful with what we now know, what couldn't God do? I'm talking like ugh, sloppily faithful, right? The, the, like, like even cringeworthy at times, like ah, that didn't go the way that I expected. If we were sloppily faithful with what we right now in this moment know, if we were, what couldn't God do with that? See, we spend so much time focusing on the unicorn, which is the idea of a prepared self. Let me just let you into a secret that doesn't exist. I'm not prepared and neither are you. But Christ is, and the Holy Spirit is with us. What we have to understand is this. God moves mountains with imperfect, unprepared people, and he gets the glory for it. That's really good news. Paul said it really well. Your power is made perfect in my weakness, which means God uses busted up, weak people to do miracles. God uses jacked up, imperfect people to restore things uh, for his glory. And God uses unprepared people to prepare the way for salvation and restoration. This is how he works. But the American dream and the American way begins to tell us, no, no, you're not ready. You're not ready. You're not ready. God doesn't need you to be ready. He just needs you to trust him. As I drove around this week, an idea began to percolate in my, my head. Satan uses what I believe is two main attacks on us, really just two. Um, It sounds pretty educated, like pretty smart. I should probably write a book about it. Um, The attacks are this, the wah and the wee. That's all he does. The wah is accusation. You're worthless. Look at your fault. Look at what you did last week. Look at your weakness. Look at your struggle. He loves to give you flashbacks to shameful, embarrassing moments. <laughs> Remember that one? He whispers in your ear, you'll never do anything worthwhile. So it causes this metaphorical drown in sorrow that happens in our heart. The, the wah, the, the, the cry to the point that we are too defeated to, to move. He tells you that you're worthless, and, and then you believe him, and, and then in fear and in shame and in hurt, you cower down because you believe the accusation of the wah over your life. And then moments where this kind of wah, this defeatist attack isn't working, he quickly and seamlessly transitions into the wee attack. 
This is where he distracts you with some toy, pleasure, hobby, or pursuit. You catching this? Crush you. Distract you. Crush you. Distract you. At the moment when you kind of raise up and you begin to go like, man, that stuff isn't true and I'm ready and the spirit begins to work and you're like, I'm ready to, to, to do this, to serve God, to be faithful and you get ready and then he introduces you to CrossFit. Overtaken. Gains. Or you magically find five new seasons of your favorite show on Netflix. You got to stream it. Or he reminds you that it's pool season and you need to soak up the sun. Or he reminds you that it's pool season and you're not ready to be seen out in public. So then you go back to CrossFit. (laughs) See, he's a master of pummeling us to the point to where we are too insecure and broken to move. And just as soon as we get up, he gives us a, a shiny toy and he misdirects us with some attraction. Either way, though, if we're not careful, no matter which attack he uses, the net result is the same. We're sitting on the sidelines. Sitting on the sidelines of our calling. And it yields a person who will not be able to join into God's work because he's either too obsessed with the lies of the enemy or too obsessed with the toys that the enemy puts in front of him. Now, the point in highlighting this isn't to make us feel bad at all. It's not to make us sulk. It's to make us aware of his tactics so you can scream, you're a liar. Right? Fight back. We get manipulated like puppets, crushed, distracted, crushed, distracted. At some point, we want to go, that's not true. Get that away from me. In verse 12, Nehemiah highlights that Shalom, the son of Helohesh, and his daughters repaired a major section of wall. Dude and his daughters. While that detail may seem random, it's not. In so many places, they talk about sons and fathers and, and male lineages all over the place. But in this place, they were extremely intentional to say a man and his daughters did something insanely unbelievable together. Here's what this tells us. Women, ladies, are able to jump in and do something valuable as well. See, this has to make us not, like, I'm not trying to jump into culture's gender war and, like, get a high five from you. That's not what we're trying to do. But this text is showing even Old Testament. It's championing the idea of valuable men and women. Women can move mountains too. They can do the unexpected. They can lead with a microphone. They can work. They can teach. They can disciple. They can see restoration come. Ladies were never meant to sit on the sidelines while the men do the work. If you look at history, the ladies have been in the game and the dudes have been distracted. They're just showing this in the story. We're not fighting for gender equality through this text. We're just saying, like, when we say together, we actually mean together. Male and female can see a part of moving mountains. Another thing that struck me about that was the idea of a family working together. At times, we can begin to see kids as barriers, don't we? Barriers to mission and calling, fun, 
Just things to navigate around, hurdles to get over, when they're two, when they sleep, when they're out of my house, then I will. Children aren't meant to be missional deal stoppers. They're missional assets. Think about hospitality. Think about service. Think about mission to your neighborhood and how your kids can play a valuable uh, part in that. Your kids are not a hindrance. Parents, I pray that that stirs you in this area. Families who labor together. We're always looking for a book, right? What do I teach my kids? What am I telling about this or that? Or how do I navigate this? What if we just disciple our kids by taking them with us? That might be the most formative thing that you can do. And here, let's be honest. Most of our parents never did that with us. But instead of telling uh, other people, like when the kids, like when I can leave the kids with my wife or with my husband or when they get this age, then I'll be missional. What if we take our kids with us and it forms them to where they want to follow Jesus? It's not dealing with kids. It's forming souls, family together. Man. Now, this text is an interesting one. It lists tons of people working in different areas. And then it just ends. There's nothing added here. It's just a list of people working together. Which is remarkable. See, this is meant to be encouraging and stirring as we read it. Started to talk about this in the last couple years, but for years, uh, people have expected the church, especially or mainly in the West, to be a purveyor of amenities. This ministry, that thing, this kid's thing. Give us a fog machine and a slide that goes into the the parking lot. Like all, all, all these stuff, just give us the stuff, which has literally emptied the people of God of their communal power. How? Because it perpetuates a system where the few talented people are the ones that do the work and everyone else comes in and they feed off of their work. The Bible shows no message like that. This was never supposed to be what the church is like. The church was meant to be a place where regular people like you and like me come together and they worship, they learn about God, they recenter their life on God by actually spending the time to come to church, and then they're deployed into his kingdom for his mission and the glory of God. And I want to say this just as clearly as I can. You have more in you than just listening to me. Man, if the Spirit would just show you that's true. Your only gift, your only goal, your only asset is not listening to me. You have more power, you have more potential, you have more Holy Spirit gifting in you than just showing up. I want you to consider that. Again, take this text, though. If the enemy's giving you accusation, God doesn't need you to be perfect anymore. He just needs you to be willing to follow him wherever he calls you. He just wants you to be willing to be used where you're at right now. Remember, sloppily faithful. Not, not, not 100% perfect execution. We're not talking about like all tens on, on an Olympic routine. Sloppily faithful. I fell on my face a couple times, but I still was faithful. The thing that really catapults a people into a powerful position is when they stop waiting to be used And they begin to ask the Holy Spirit, will you use me now? What do you want me to do? What do you want me to do? Show me how to be faithful, where I'm at right now. Look down, what are in my hands? You're like, my life is a mess. He can use that. 
If you're thinking, you know, I don't, I don't know if the Holy Spirit has laid any of those special callings on my life to this point. So where do I start if I don't hear anything specifically over and above general uh, calling? Where, where do I actually start? A perfect place to start, and I'm, I'm pretty careful because I don't want to give you a ton of pragmatism uh, that cuts off what the Spirit may actually ask you to do. But if you haven't heard anything and you've been asking, here's a number one step that you can do right now that I promise he won't be mad at. Open up your dinner table moving forward to people who do not believe what you do. If you want to begin to be used right now without knowing anything else, share a meal with people who are not Christian. Further than that, and as you do, begin listening to their story as you eat with them. Listen to their desire, their idea of success, their dreams. Listen about their family. Ask questions. Listen for their hurts, for their sadness, uh, for, for their uh, de- defeat. L- listen to where their dreams have let them down. Listen to the words that they're giving and begin to speak the gospel wherever you may in the middle of it. Not because they are your project to solve, but because the gospel is the only thing that brings life. Invite people in. Listen way more than you talk. And then when you talk, please don't give moralism. Share the gospel with them. As for general calling stuff, another place to start is just simply serving. I know a bunch of you here were early and downstairs for our kids' meeting. Thank you for that. Outside of special calling, there's still general calling. Just the, the stuff that we're all meant to, to do. We need more Redemption Hill kids workers. Men, we need some of you. Especially, like, and here's the thing I kind of think about. If you're like, no, 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 like, I believe in women doing stuff too, and I believe we're all valuable, but you won't volunteer downstairs? I don't know if that goes together. It's not just women's work. We need help with that. We need help setting up and tearing down. We set this stuff up. We'll show you how to plug the speakers in. We need people who are willing to be on time and just kind of help us out. We need people who are here to welcome people in hospitality. Now, that's the one that we probably don't need everybody in, right? Because if you're always angry face, that's probably not a great spot for you. But we need that. Even if you don't know the specific things that you're called to. There's general things you can do right now. There's opening up your table right now. And realize that when we work together, when we all begin to kind of play a part, when our sidelines are empty because everyone's sloppily out on the field, God can do epically more than we ever thought possible. Here's my contention. And what I've seen in several of you, and I think it's coming out of me as well, uh, there's this fire down deep inside for more. To cease, it's like to be a part of, something, see people saved, to see the gospel shared, to see lives restored, to see amazing things happen, almost this desperation for the power of God or renewal of God. Man, my hope through this text and what kind of what we're doing right now is that we wouldn't focus on all the ways that we've failed, that we move forward in that fire together and just see what happens. How does God do amazing things? It's not waiting for the moment when one special person does an amazing thing. It's when we all just stand up and go, what can we do? That's when the magic happens. God can use us and not just some of us. 
We can open our table. We can begin to ask in prayer, what's your will for me? What do you want me to do? I mean, I, I would love to get to the point where we are all doing that. It's just sloppily faithful. And then I've got to have like Lauren every week coming before service going, when are you going to tell him about another baptism? When are you going to tell him about another baptism? That's what I want to do. We want to see people saved. But it takes us all telling the enemy, hey, man, that's not true anymore. And it takes us maybe looking at our schedule and what we're doing and going like, man, I, I, I can't be a part of God's mission with all these things going on, right? Now, while this whole chapter is a rallying call to bond together and work together, we need to state it clearly. If you begin to work in the mission of God when you had not before, if you decide to open your home tomorrow, and if you begin to serve in a new way, none of that saves you. It doesn't even move the needle on your salvation. You don't get an extra star. All of our work, all of our service, all of our mission, all of our calling is just a shadow of the greater work that Jesus has already done for us. We are those who have been gloriously saved from ourselves by Jesus. We, because of that, have thrown the full weight of our hope on Christ for our sin for our future, for our identity, all of that is in him. We earn nothing on our, on our own, and we accomplish nothing on our own. All of our work, all of our calling, all of our service is meant to come out of an overflowing joy that Christ has first worked in me. He's first saved me when I couldn't save myself. So I want to walk with him in what he's called me to do. I want to be careful with that. We're not moralists. We're not Pharisees. We're not earning our way to heaven by just all of us getting a whole lot more devoted. The gospel is clear. Christ came down from heaven to accomplish salvation. He does that. And when he does that, he simultaneously calls us to be a part of what he's doing. The text isn't a call to save yourself. It's a reminder. This is the truth. If you have been saved, this is who you are and this is what you get to be a part of. I just urge you, if you haven't leaned into that salvation, no matter how long you've been with us, man, I, I would urge you to. You don't have to earn your way. You don't have to prove yourself. You don't have to, to get all of these things done. You don't have to be uh, super prepared or have all this stuff done. You can lean into Christ and go, I need that salvation because I can't get it for myself. If you've been waiting, I would just ask you, why are you waiting anymore? Somebody would love to pray with you after service. I know Garrett or other people would, would be happy uh, to do that. You guys can come back up. We're going to take communion today. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three through 26, we read it all the time. For I receive from the Lord what I also deliver to you. I just want to focus for just a second. Like Even that text shows communion is not Redemption Hill's thing. It's a passing on of what Jesus first brought. That the Lord Jesus, on the night when he is betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. As we worship and uh, they play a couple more songs uh, for us today. Man, I, I just encourage you, remember the work has been finished for you. 
The enemy's accusations over you aren't true. The body of Christ was broken, and there is blood that covers every bit of your shame, every one of your sins. You stand here, if your faith is in Christ, completely clean, completely restored. Nothing can change that. So, man, I pray as you take that your heart would be filled with gratitude no matter what your last week has been like. Then maybe take and pray, God, what would you have us do? What would you have me do? What would you have my family do, God? Ask him and see what he may say to you. I cannot wait to see what it would be like if our ragtag group of people were just all somehow sloppily into the mission of God. I think it would be beautiful. I'd love to see it. And I think you guys would too. Would you stand and pray with me?